I love to be able to look around this church, and yeah, you can be seated, to look around this church and to see the evidence of revival, to see people coming fully alive in Jesus. It is amazing. It is amazing the work of the Lord that's happening here in this church. I'm so excited to be preaching this morning, and you're here on a good Sunday. We're kicking off a new three-week series called The Lost Parables of Jesus. Now, this is going to be a three-week crash course equipping for us to learn how to partner with Jesus in finding lost people. That song that we just sang, it's not just a song for a Sunday. It's a lifestyle that we long and desire to live. Amen? Amen. To see hearts come alive in Jesus. And so that is what we're going to be leaning into in this series. There's a a few kind of like high-arching things that I want to do this morning. I want to spend a little bit of time uh, clarifying some definitions. And uh, before I go too much farther, I just got to pause because I I think I always do this every time I preach. I'm just so excited. I'm like, I'm so excited to get to the Word of God. You don't even know who I am, some of you. So I'm going to pause, take a breath. That's good. I've been working on my breathing exercises lately. I'm Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve in, uh, in worship and creative and overseeing that. And, uh, and I, I love, like, not having to be up here every week and just, like, what a, what a team that we're gifted with who lead us in worship. So I'm so grateful for everyone who serves in those areas and the production guys who just continue week after week to lay down their lives. So love our teams, but uh, it is a great honor to serve as one of the pastors here. So let's get back to it. I want to do kind of a 30,000 uh, foot view as we jump into this series because there's some things and some words that I want to define to really help kind of give some clarity as to where we're going to be going these next three weeks. So there's some words that I want to define. Um, I'll make it really simple. It's, uh, it's not the and it's not Jesus, okay? I want to spend some time defining the words lost and parables so that we're all kind of on the same page. This word lost is an important word in the New Testament. It actually comes from the Greek word apollomy, okay? And it means to destroy fully, to die, to lose, or to perish. We're going deep quick, right? Die, to lose, to perish. So this word, it carries uh, significant consequences, okay? To be lost carries significant consequences consequences. And it's such a serious word, actually, and 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 what it evokes is is the very reason why Jesus came here to earth on the first place. Think of Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It's a really important verse in scripture. It's where Jesus actually gives his mission statement for why he came to this earth. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus his heart, it beats for lost people. And it's why he came to this earth. It's why he humbled himself and put on flesh and came as a baby and lived in this painful world that we live in and lived a perfect life and didn't give in to the temptation of sin, yet uh, was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities, was put to death, was, 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 uh, bore all the weight of our shame, and then was victorious over the grave to provide a way for us for new life. Amen? That is the gospel in its essence. It's the work that Jesus did, saving lost people. And let me tell you, he is still in the business of saving lost people. And the cool thing is he does it now through people like you and like me. What an honor. If you were with us in this Easter series, you know we studied uh, uh, really this in a really personal way through the life of Peter. And we know and kind of learned through this series, we were reminded Peter just 
wasn't that great of a friend to Jesus. He was kind of one of those guys who uh, was a little bit flaky, you know, at some points, or, you know, actually denied knowing Jesus. Like, that's, that's not a very good friend, right? But Jesus was merciful to Peter. Jesus was merciful to him, and he was kind to him. And when Peter was finally able to receive the mercy of Jesus, Pastor John preached on this last week, and it was such a powerful word. Jesus gave Peter a new purpose. And who remembers what he said? He said, Peter, if you love me, what? Feed, yeah, most of you got it. I think I heard it all. He said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And I love the discussions that happened in life group around this question this week. It was so powerful. He says, if you love me, feed my sheep. But here is the truth, is that the before the sheep can be fed, they need to be found. Before the sheep can be fed, they need to be found. And so there is a mission on us. Now, I, 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 I'm kicking myself because I just used alliteration. And, and John, if you remember in his sermon last week, he says, I make fun of pastors who, who use those Twitter lines. So uh, I'm going to think I'm going to hear it from Pastor John later. It might tease me a little bit, but Jesus is on the business of saving lost people. Is everyone good with this word lost? We understand that it carries significance uh, and importance and uh, and that what Jesus is in the business of doing is saving lost people. We're good on that? Okay. Jumping next to define this word parable, the gospel of Luke, especially if you just flip through it and uh, and you flip through the pages, you'll see this parable, this word parable is used over and over again. And uh, what it is, it's a use of an illustration often taken from everyday life to, te- to teach a deeper spiritual truth or a moral lesson. See, in Jewish culture, they often use word pictures to make a point. Now, in our culture, we do things just a little bit different. Let's say for a moment, um, somebody shout out like an area that you live in around the city. Georgetown. Okay, so let's say Georgetown. Uh, I love, we're team Georgetown. We live in Georgetown. It's the best. Sorry. <laughs> but let's say Georgetown. This would never happen, but it was experiencing a surge in crime rates. Okay, and uh, crime was getting so bad that there was maybe a town hall meeting that was organized to discuss this. And what's going to happen in our culture is that somebody's going to come in and they're going to share a report and uh, on what's going on with this crime. And what they're going to do is they're going to put on their nerdy glasses and share about facts and statistics, right? Like, that's kind of where our society steers toward. We like definitions, we like facts, we like statistics. So it's just not the case in Jewish culture. They're a highly relational culture. I can testify to this. I grew up in the Middle East in that area. And they use word pictures and stories and parables to communicate points. And so this word parable in Greek, it literally means to set beside something, or in our English word, to make a comparison. So Jesus is using parables. What he's doing is to state an obvious truth and then to reveal a hidden truth. And we'll get to this a little bit more in a minute. So the lost parables of Jesus, we've defined our terms. We're going to be studying Luke chapter 15. So if you've got your Bibles, you've got your Bible app, go ahead and flip open to that at this time. And uh, what, what we're going to see in, in Luke chapter 15 is actually three of these parables that we just defined. And it's going to be the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Now, most of us are probably most familiar with the very last one, the parable of the lost son, or another way to say it is the prodigal son. Can I get a show of hands? Like, who all knows that story? Pretty familiar with it. Yep, a good amount of us. And, uh, but, but, but I want to kind of draw us back a little bit. 
Because notice in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three consecutive parables. And these parables are all meant to go together. And sometimes when we just like kind of chop off maybe like the prodigal son story and we read that on its own, what happens is that we miss the broader context of what Jesus is actually speaking to. And what happens if, if, if we start to kind of stray down that line is that we actually might miss who Jesus is or what he's really saying. See, if we just read the story of the lost uh, son and the prodigal story on its own, we might think, hmm, I think what this is saying is Jesus is just kind of like, hey, we should just kind of hang back and sit back like while sinners are out there like messing up their lives and, and not really do anything about it. If we just read that on its own, but it's not the case. We've got to read the other two parables to really understand what Jesus is saying about lost people. The series and uh, in these next three weeks, they're really going to build on each other. And today we're going to see how Jesus actually starts with one lost thing out of 100 things. And then next week, we're going to see how he talks about one lost thing out of 10. And then the final week, how he talks about one lost thing out of two. It's just every week, Jesus is doubling down on this point that he's making is that people have great value to him. They have great value to him. I want to uh, actually read a little bit of an introduction to a book here. And if you've heard me preach the last, uh, probably over the last year, I've probably mentioned this book quite a few times in uh, one of my sermons, but um, it's called Gentle and Lowly. It's by Dane Ortland. Uh, this book has quickly climbed up on the list of one of my all-time favorite books uh, because it's all about getting back to the heart of Jesus, who Jesus really is. And I think now more than ever, the church needs to get back to Jesus. We need to get away from religion. We need to get back to the relationship that we have in Jesus. Amen? And so this book, Gentle and Lowly, is a great one. I highly recommend it. Jot it down. But listen to what it says in this introduction because I actually think it sets the tone for what I'm going to be preaching on Today, I feel like it's an introduction written for this message. It says, this is a book about the heart of Christ. Who is he? Who is he really? What is most natural to him? What ignites him most immediately as he moves towards sinners and sufferers? What flows out most freely, most instinctively? Who is he? This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for the increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God's love, God, who God loves us but suspect we may have deeply disappointed him who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors perhaps mild resistant, who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired, who are convinced we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord, who have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness. It's for those who look at our lives and know how to interpret the data only by concluding that God is fundamentally stingy. This book is written, in other words, for normal Christians. In short, it is for sinners and sufferers. How does Jesus feel about them? If we're going to talk about evangelism, if we're going to talk about reaching lost people, we've got to understand what Jesus' heart is like for lost people. And what we're going to discuss today is going to help reveal that there's a couple truths 
one, fundamentally all people are lost. All people are lost. Even if you've put your faith in Jesus, at some point or another, you have been lost in your life. And Pastor Ryan preached a couple months ago an amazing sermon on just how, how we're prone to wander. We're prone to wander from the mercy and from the love of God and, and to make bad choices in that. Right? All people are lost. But here's the other thing. All people are worth finding. Do you believe it? All people are worth finding. And what we're going to see is that all people are in different places in terms of their estrangement to God. And what that means for us is that all people require different methods to reach. They require different methods. We can't just sit back all the time and just let the prodigal be the prodigal. Sometimes there needs to be another solution to reaching lost people. So let's jump into learning about how Jesus thinks and feels about lost people. If you've got your Bibles open, Luke 15, 1 through 7, and I'll be reading from the ESV. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. In verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. I'm going to spend some time setting the scene for this story because there's a couple different people who we find in the audience. Look at verse 1. It says, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So this first group of people are the spectators. Now, we just, this past week in our country, we just filed taxes, right? If that's news to you this morning, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You might need to write the IRS an apology letter. Uh, if you're like me, you might have semi-procrastinated. I think I, I filed a Monday night, so not quite at the deadline, but probably later than I should have. And, uh, and if you're especially like me, uh, you would have been very disappointed with the uh, lack of return this year, right? And so it was a tough year, man. Woof. Nobody likes getting money taken from them. Come on, right? Yeah, so if there's an IRS agent sitting right here this morning, I'm being real. I'm having a hard time making eye contact with him this morning. I'm like, dude, you just robbed me, man. Oh, like, it, it would be hard to talk to him. Well, these tax collectors, it, it's kind of the same. They're viewed the same way in the Jewish culture. Actually, I think even worse, they were viewed as traitors to the Jewish culture. You see, they kind of acted as these, like, mediators between Rome and, the, and, 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 and Israel. And uh, they would collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And what we know from historical context is like Rome, for the countries under their oppression, they taxed everything, like everything, okay? They had a fish tax. They had a land tax. They had a wine tax. They taxed you just to pick, take part in their census, just to be counted as like a, a, a member, a living being. They taxed you for that. They taxed you for the number of wheels that you had on your carts. Like they taxed for everything. It was super intense. And so the Jews didn't like these tax collectors. They didn't like them, and they kind of put them in the same category as the sinners, as the robbers, as the thieves, as the prostitutes, as the murderers. These people were looked down upon. I quickly want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 5, because Jesus gives us a little bit of glimpse 
in this chapter. And so this is uh, when Jesus actually calls Levi, who would become Matthew, to follow him. And there's this story that happens there. I'm just going to summarize it really quick. You can turn there if you want. Uh, it's it's uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 27. That's kind of where the story begins. But, but Jesus is, uh, is with Matthew, and Matthew throws a feast for him, and he invites all these other tax collectors and all these other friends to join him. And the Pharisees show up, and they do their usual thing. They start grumbling, and they start criticizing Jesus to his disciples. Who is this guy? Why is he hanging out with the riffraff, man? Like, these people are, are gross. Like, their lives are messy and disgusting. Like, why, why is he spending time with them? And Jesus, he answers them. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, what we're learning in this story is that these, these people, they weren't a project to Jesus. Okay? These tax collectors, these sinners, they weren't a project for Jesus. They were his friends. They're people that he spent time making with the Father, that he helped knit together in his image. He loved these people. They were close friends to him. He saw great value in them. And then he says, I'm like a good physician. I know these people are sick. And guess what? I've got the remedy. And like any good doctor, like any good doctor, he's going to work to diagnose what's the problem and to give the medicine to help fix that. Jesus cares for him. He loves these people. And so no doubt it's going to upset him when, in verse 2, we see the Pharisees show up. And what do they do? The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled. Again, that word grumbling, like we saw in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 5, it says, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. In their own sense, they show up to try to make sense of Jesus, but they can't get over the distraction of his friends. Now, I love how Skip Heitzig, how he, how he defines these, uh, the, this people group of, of Pharisees. And some of, the, some of my research this week, I didn't actually realize um, there was only about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. So this was like a pretty elite group of, 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 of religious uh, leaders. And uh, they were really respected and feared by all. But uh, Skip Heitzig kind of defines them as like the, the varsity players uh, in like a, in a high school, okay? So like think back to your high school years and uh, maybe a kid starts off in his sports journey and he's a little bit humbled when he's like going through freshman ball and, and, and JV, but then he makes varsity, right? And he, his, his chest puffs up a little bit. He's kind of got that swagger. We're right across from Dell Diamond where the Round Rock Express play. I can't help but think like of a, maybe a baseball player who signs a $300 million contract. And I imagine when he'd come in the next day, he'd probably have a little bit of a different strut. Like, yeah, I'm the man. That's how the Pharisees' posture was, right? They're like, we've, we've got this together. Like, we're the ruling class. We make the rules. And they were feared because of that. But whenever the Pharisees show up in the same place where Jesus is, there is fireworks. Man, they clash like no other. They are constantly going back and forth. The Pharisees showing up, they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're criticizing, they're misunderstanding who Jesus is. And then Jesus, in the right way, he rebukes them. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them hypocrites. It's just constantly fireworks as they're going Back and forth. And so Jesus is going to share. He shares this parable to speak a language that all Jews, whether skeptics or whether spectators, could understand. Because he wants to point out the obvious truth and then reveal, like I said earlier, that hidden truth. So let's jump to the story. Verse 3 and 4. So it says, so he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, 
if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Again, remember the fireworks comment. Jesus could have started with any other illustration, but yet he chooses a shepherd. Now, let's put this in perspective a little bit. Uh, when we're talking about like kind of the rungs on a ladder of, of social status, it would have been sinners, um, prostitutes, thieves, murderers, all at the bottom, okay? And then like maybe a rung above them is the tax collectors, okay? And then right above them is gonna be the shepherds. The shepherds were not held in high regard. They were kind of looked at as people of the land and they, they just weren't well respected. The irony of this, and Heitzig reminds us of this in, in his message on this on the same chapter, is that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, think of all the forefathers of the faith. What were they? What did they all have in common? They were shepherds. Do you see how far religion has taken these people from where it actually started? That this religion, this relationship, I should say, with God, it grew from men who were who were committed to farming or to uh, to shepherding. Probably farming too, but they, they're shepherds. Yet these religious ones, they, they creep in and they start to actually discount where this movement started. They start to discount these people of lower social status. And the point is, is that religion, it produces hard hearts that have forgotten what the business of caring for people is like. It's exactly what's happening with the Pharisees. And Jesus is exposing that out of all of the Pharisees have their titles, the power, the positions, they lack the most important thing is that they lack love. They lack love for people. Jesus isn't going to tolerate that. With religion, with a bad heart, it produces popularity contests and power trips. And I've just got to call it out right now. Some of you have maybe been a part of a church where you actually experienced that firsthand or a part of a community. And let me just say, I'm sorry. Let me speak for Jesus for a minute and just say, I'm Jesus is sorry. That's not what his church is supposed to look like. That's not what a relationship with him is supposed to look like, where there's an exclusive elite club sitting in a green room, kind of separated from the rest of everybody, okay? We are all equal. We are all equal under Jesus. And our hearts should long for one another, to care for one another, to love one another with genuine love. That is the type of church that Awakened Church is, and it's what we strive for, and I hope you experience that here. To serve Jesus is about to be about the business of caring for sheep. Don't ever lose perspective of that. No matter where you go in life, whether you plant a church, whether you go into missions, to follow Jesus is about caring for sheep. Don't lose that heart. Don't lose that heart. Okay, I'm going to soften up a little bit. Whew, getting a little intense. Um, I want to focus a little bit now on the sheep, okay? Because the sheep is an important part of this story. Now, sheep, they have some really endearing qualities. They're kind of cute and fluffy and, and all of that. But on the other hand, they are some really dumb animals. I'm just going to say it, okay? They are some really dumb animals. And sorry if I'm offending you, but check out this video and it'll prove my point, okay? Oh, Abusha, 
Молодец, Света. Умничка. Умничка. Все, операция удалась. I had to send it to a friend who speaks Russian, and she told me, there, first of all, there's no inappropriate language. So I was like, that's good. And then she told me that the lady was saying, you dumb sheep, you dumb sheep, what are you doing? Okay, before we start blaming the sheep and we start pulling ourselves out of the story, I just, we, we, we are a church that practices authenticity. We're real with one another. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I've done some dumb things too, okay? I see some elbows going out over here. All right, easy does it, easy does it. Picture this. Imagine there's a truck coming down 79. And imagine for some reason, I don't know why, but this truck is full of tigers, okay? And if this truck tips over and suddenly we get a news alert that there's tigers on the loose, what are we all doing? Like, I'm running for the, I'm going, I'm pushing y'all out of the way. I'm getting my three little kids. I'm running for the hills, right? But let's say there's a truck full of sheep and it tips over. And the sheep are on the loose. What are we going to do? Oh, like, I'm going to go get my kids and be like, let's go get the sheep, right? We're going to go rescue them. And it's because it's like sheep, they're not ferocious animals. They're not a threat. But they're also not leaders. They're followers. They get themselves into trouble from time to time. They never walk in a straight line. Their eyes are kind of on the sides of their head and they're constantly scared of danger. So they kind of walk in like a zigzag pattern. And rightly so. They have no natural defenses but to run. I would be scared too. They can sense danger from about 1,200 to 15 yards away. Here's another interesting fact about them. They've got a keen sense of smell. They can actually locate water by smell. But they never drink from running water from a stream. They only drink from still water. Think of Psalm 23, written by the shepherd David. You lead me beside what? Still waters. That's the place where nourishment and rest and refreshment happen. They don't drink out of running streams. Why? Because if you were wearing 100 sweaters, you'd drown. <laughs> they're nervous. They're like fidgety, scared animals. And they're cute, but they're really dumb. I want to introduce to you my friend Marshmallow up here, okay? And I thought about it. I actually had my wife reach out to some folks and they're like, let's find a sheep to bring in. That'd be really cool. And then I remembered I don't really like animals and that would have been a disaster. I would have gone viral in a moment. But the thing about sheep is that they just have this tendency to wander. They have a tendency to wander, and they don't have a great sense of direction. And so when they get lost, they just kind of keep going, and, and they get tangled up until they just kind of stop and don't know what to do. And the pains and the sorrows of life start to get to them. Maybe they get caught in the thickets. That's causing them pain, and that's causing them hurt. And it twists them up to the point where they know they're in trouble. But they just kind of stand there. The reality of it is, is that there's people like this. There's people like this who know they're lost. They know they've messed up their lives. They've known 
They've made bad choices. In fact, they're haunted by their poor decisions. Nobody has to tell them that. They feel the conviction over their own sin, over their own mess, and it's causing them shame and embarrassment, but they're just stuck in that place. Like our friend Marshmallow. He's trapped. He can't get out, and so he just kind of stays put. In this story, there's one thing that we know about sheep. It only tells us one thing about sheep. They're good at getting lost. Out of all the things Jesus could have said about the sheep, that's what he tells us. They're good at getting lost. And he's revealing a hidden truth about humanity. We are prone to wander. We are prone to get lost. We are prone to find ourselves in some really messy situations. And what happens oftentimes in life, because we forget that we're herd animals, we forget that we're built for community, not just with one another, but actually with God himself. And because we reject that maybe and we hold God at arm's distance, we find ourselves isolated. And we say it all the time around here at Awaken Church. Man, if you find yourself in a place of isolation, a place of withdrawing in your life, and it can be because for a variety of reasons, maybe there has been church hurt. Maybe there has been broken relationships. Maybe you're just busy. Maybe work's gotten crazy and you start to isolate and you start to pull away. What should be happening is there should be an alarm going off in your head saying, warning, warning, danger, danger. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get tripped up. It's inevitable. You're going to get lost. It's the point that Jesus is stressing. You're going to get tangled up in sin. It's an obvious point. We have to remain sensitive We have to remain sensitive to the heart of Jesus. He doesn't want us to isolate. He doesn't want us to stray. But also he tells us that we're prone to do this and other people are prone to do this. Now there's an interesting point to this parable. And I think why Jesus actually starts with one sheep out of 100. A hundred sheep flock, or I don't know, however you say that. I'm not a farmer. I'm not a shepherd. I keep mixing those up. Hundred size is like, it's a pretty decent flock. And so there would have been probably a temptation for the shepherd to say, mm, I know I've, I've got 10 sheep that are pregnant. And I've got them, they're doing the spring. <sighs> that one lost sheep is actually kind of replaceable. I can just overlook it. I can write it off. I'll eat the cost for it. Because the truth is at this time, it's the shepherds who would have been on the hook for a lost sheep. If that thing wandered off and it got mauled and eaten by an animal, they would have to bring a bone back or bring an ear back or some proof to the owner of what happened to the sheep. But when it's one of a hundred, I don't really want to go out and search for it. Thank God that is not what his character is like. Thank God that he doesn't just write off the one bad seed, the one black sheep, and just say, ah, let him wander. There's plenty more. What Jesus is telling us about his heart, and let's turn our attention to the shepherd, is that he loves the lost. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, and when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. There's a few things that Jesus is telling us really about himself and then this ministry that he is inviting us into. Is that Jesus, he pursues us with intensity. He pursues us with intensity. I love the worship set this morning and just reminding ourselves that it's God who has pursued us. 
Man, he has come after us time and time and time again, and we have no room to boast of anything that we've done. We love to talk in our day and age about, I'm just seeking truth. I'm seeking enlightenment. I, I want to know God. Well, God knows you. God knows you, and he's pursuing you. That's the point. The shepherd is pursuing you with intensity. And, and when he finds us, what does he do? He pulls us from danger. There's no limits to the great length that he'll go to actually pull us out of danger. Even when we trip and fall, when we feel like, when I read that introduction to the book, we feel like beyond repair, like I've messed up too many times. It just draws Jesus in deeper because that's what his heart is. It's, it's full of mercy. It's full of tenderness to the, to the lost sheep. And when he finds us, even if we go further down or even if we continue to run from him, he'll continue to pursue. He pulls us from the danger. He doesn't kick at us. He doesn't say, you dumb sheep, how'd you get lost? He meets us with kindness, with tenderness, with mercy. And then not only that, the savior of this world, he bends down on his knee. This animal is probably somewhere around 100-something pounds. And what does he do? He, he picks it up and he puts it over his shoulder. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. He's full of praise. He's rejoicing for the lost one. Like, do we get the heart of Christ? Man, he is so kind. And I'm just going to be fully honest here. Like, there hasn't been, like, seasons where Jesus has carried me. Like, all of my life, Jesus has carried me. Because that's the truth. I've had very little to offer him, yet he's always met me with kindness and with mercy. He's pursued me. He's pulled me up from the, from the pits of life. He's placed me on his shoulders. He sings over me. He rejoices. This is who Jesus is. We got to let it sink deep into our hearts, the truth about what he says about himself. I love this poem written by H.F. Light in 1834. It says, Father-like he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. So as we wrap up, what's the significance of this message? Let's wrap up on verse 7. It says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And Jesus is making it plain that the Pharisees are the 99. They're the self-righteous ones in their own eyes. But get, that, get this, they're not righteous in God's eyes. They consider themselves righteous, but God doesn't count them as righteous because their own selfishness, own selfishness and self-righteousness, it produces pride. And what that pride says is, I don't need repentance. I just want to point out something. The word repents that's used right there, it's used in a present tense. And what this is communicating is that we're called to a lifestyle of repentance. It's not a moment on Sundays where we come in from a bad week with all of our mess and we're like, sorry, God. It's a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of brokenness, of saying, I can't clean myself up enough to come to Jesus. I have to meet him. I have to daily repent. I have to daily let him wash me. I have to daily let him carry me. Let me, let me hold my burdens. I can't do it on my own. We have to live this lifestyle of repentance. We're running out of time, so I'm going to invite the band back up.
And as we wrap up, I think there's some important questions that we need to answer, but I want to go back to our original question that I started the message out on. And it's this. I want to make it personal. How do you feel? How do you feel about lost people? I think we're really good in this day and age of trying to love people at an arm's distance. You notice what Jesus does? He actually shares a meal with the sinners, with the tax collectors. He was deeply involved in their life. There's so much beauty in that. Yet we kind of live in a closed garage door type society. I work a long day and I roll into my house and I shut my garage door right away and I don't know any of my neighbors. I don't really care about my coworkers. Their lives are kind of messy and oh man, they're doing some dumb stuff and and oh man, all these sinful people around me and they're all confused on, 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 on their sexuality and their gender. And then you just start to label people and start to make all these accusations. And what we do is that we hold them at arm's length. Thank God that's not who Jesus is. Thank God that he picks us up, he draws us in, that he shares a meal with us. This is the type of faith that we are called to live. And here's the thing, kind of brushed over this point at the end, but I think one of the most overlooked attributes of God is that he's joyful. Is that God is joyful. He's joyful. And what brings joy to God's heart is when lost people are found. Listen, if you consider yourselves a son and a daughter of God, if you've put your faith in Jesus, I just got to ask you, do you see the value in that? Do you see the value that's there in the opportunity to bring joy to your father's heart? To be about what he's about? Isn't that worth your life? Isn't that worth your purpose and your mission? In loving and reaching the lost. I want to invite you to do two things if you find yourself in this kind of first camp. You believe in Jesus, but maybe the love's grown a little bit cold. There's two things that I want you to do. I want you to pray for a heart that is desperate to reach the lost. We've got some time in this last worship set, and, and please pray that prayer. Speak straight to Jesus. Pray for his heart to become your heart. Pray for a heart that is desperate to reach the lost. And then I want to invite you as well, whether right now or during the worship set, please don't leave this building. Take out your notes, and I want to invite you and challenge you with thinking through who is your one person. Because, friends, we look around us, even just this week in the news cycle, and people getting shot, and this world just wants to hate and hurt each other. There are people out there who need love, who need love. There's people in your life who need love, yet you're holding them perhaps at arm's length. And Jesus wants you to embrace them. He wants you to invite them into your home, into your life group, into your community, to share life with them. Who is that one person? Please don't leave here this morning without writing something down of somebody, a lost one who you are pursuing. Some of you may find yourselves just coming in here. You may find yourself tangled up in some bad stuff like our friend Marshmallow. Here's the truth that you need to encounter this morning. Jesus loves you. 
It's that simple. He hasn't rejected you. He's not approaching you on his pursuit of you, yelling at you, criticizing you, condemning you. He's pouring out mercy on you. He's calling you back to him so that all of this stuff that's entangled you, that it can be removed. And like the freedom that we sang about this morning, that you can live a life of freedom and hope and joy. That is what we're promised in Christ. And Jesus wants to restore you to that place. He's drawing near to you. The question is, are you going to let him pick you up? Are you going to let him carry you? Because friends, that's the only response. If the journey leads anywhere else but surrender to Christ, then we've missed who Jesus is.